All right, we talked last week about how it's uh, our custom that the week that we, we start our, our church camps for our kids and our teens, that we talk about the topic that they will be talking about this week. It allows us as families to come together and be on the same page, uh, but it also allows us uh, for you to be praying for our kids this week while they're at camp, that these messages, that these teachings will get impressed on their hearts. It allows you to pray more specifically about what they're learning. Uh, the camp that we're, we're starting today, our high schoolers are headed with uh, Nathan and our two interns and 14 campers are headed up to York, Nebraska for a camp called Soul Quest. Uh, and their theme this week is Upside Down, Upside Down. And so they're headed up there. And, and when our teens are traveling right now, they're, they left at 9 o'clock this morning. They're probably uh, getting closer to the Oklahoma-Kansas border as we're here worshiping this morning. Uh, and our temptation is to pray for their safe travels. And, and our, our desire is that they would have a great drive there without any trouble and any problems. But there's a little bit of an irony to that. See, the irony to that is if they're able to get to York and if they are actually impressed with the teaching that they're given this week, that they should be calling the world to live in this upside-down kingdom that we read about in the book of Acts, then the reality is that they are going to be answering a call to enter into a life of adventure and danger. That the Christian walk is not intended to be comfortable, safe, and boring. And if they hear that message that our prayers for safety are going to be undone by their own encounter with the gospel. And if your life of faith uh, is not like that, if you're thinking, man, he's call, talking about a life, a, a Christian life that is called towards adventure and to danger and to difficulty and to sacrifice, that doesn't feel like my life, then I think we need to look at the scriptures and see where what Paul is doing in the book of Acts is different from what we're doing and maybe step up a little. Maybe we need to see what is going on in Acts and in the New Testament that is causing people to be so upset with Paul and his message that they're willing to start riots, that they're willing to commit murder, that they're willing to go to all kinds of incredible lengths to challenge what Paul is trying to do in his early churches. In the book of Acts, which is the text that was read earlier, uh, we're going to read the first nine verses. We're going to move through a lot of text today. I don't have them on the PowerPoint. Um, my excuse is that I was at camp all week, uh, but it just didn't happen. But there's a lot of text. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, there's also some in the chairs in front of you. Uh, if you want to use your phone, that's going to help you to move quicker from one to the other, so that's fine too. Uh, but we're starting in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, starting in, in verse 1. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now, it's important that, that just for a moment here, I, I need to stop and let you know that Messiah, in our language in the church today, means the one who died on the cross to save us from our sins. But, but in their world, it's the word for king, the anointed one, the one who they had been praying for and waiting for and anticipating and expecting 
And so it's a, a difficult teaching for Paul to go to the synagogue and say, you know the king that you've been praying for and waiting for, the anointed one that you've been crying out to God and say, God, send us a new ruler, a new deliverer, a new great one to rule over our people. And Paul's message is he already came and he was killed, but he rose from the grave. He's the king. He's the anointed one that we have been praying for. And this message begins to take root in the church, uh, the Jewish synagogue where he's preaching. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. There's something about Paul's message that is making people lose their minds. They're going absolutely crazy. Riots in the streets, chaos. The government is in turmoil. The people are there. Uh, I, I also just love the, the image of, uh, of these jealous people going and rounding up some bad characters because you know if all you do is kind of lead Bible studies, you're not really good at riots, but you know who is. And they go and they recruit them and they're like, hey, we're angry. We need you to get everyone mad and angry with us. Let's get crazy up in here. And they do. They start getting wild. And the accusation that they bring against Paul and his message uh, is that he's causing chaos and trouble all over the world, and they've now come here. Uh, I like the English Standard Version, and this is where the theme comes from, upside down. The English Standard Version translates it into a phrase that we more commonly use. They say, and when they could not find them, talking about Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They're turning the world upside down. The way that things used to be aren't anymore because these guys won't be quiet. These guys keep telling people about King Jesus, and after they leave and tell people about King Jesus, everything's in turmoil. You know, there's some really great mission trips that Christians have had historically over the years, and they've gone to places and they've done great things. But how often does a church get planted in a community, and at the next city council meeting, someone stands up and says, I need to talk to you about the Church of Christ that just opened down the street, because they're just making everything bad and awful. They're just turning the whole world upside down. I used to know what was right and what was wrong, and now they're just making everything confusing. I want them out of here. All too often, churches today are planted and live and die without anyone really taking notice. And yet everywhere Paul goes, he's causing riots in the street. There's people that are ready to kill him. On numerous occasions, people take vows that they won't, do, uh, they, they won't eat until they're able to kill this guy, Paul. And, and Paul is arrested, and he's put on trial, and he's stoned. And, and all of these things are happening to Paul because he keeps preaching this message of the good news, and it keeps making people crazy. 
And so the question I want to to look into today is, what is it about Paul's sermons, what is it about Paul's message, what is it about Paul's gospel that is making people so upset that they're saying, this guy's turning the world upside down and we have to stop it now? Because if we can find that message, then I think we might be able to turn the world upside down for Jesus again today. That we have a responsibility not to live safely, but to live dangerously as people who are changing the world into what God wants it to be. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is that, that one of the things that the gospel immediately starts to do is to change how, to change, mark the wrong text here, is to change how people think of who is great and who is worthy of honor, and who is not worthy of honor. Who is worthy of respect and should have power, and who should not have respect and have power. And and this is one of the core teachings of Jesus' message as he's leading his disciples and apostles. And and in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see uh, one of these times that Jesus is trying to turn upside down the apostles and disciples' entire understanding about what greatness is, and who is worthy of honor. In most of the Gospels, there's three occasions where Jesus is going to predict his death. And he tells the apostles, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem, and the leaders that are there, the rulers that are there, are going to arrest me and have me crucified. He says, I'm headed towards death. On one of those occasions, it's when Peter says, no, you're not, and and he says, get behind me, Satan. But in all of the Gospels, when this conversation starts happening, it's always connected to conversations about greatness. Who is the greatest? Because when Jesus starts talking about how he's going to be arrested and crucified, the apostles start arguing about who takes over when this king is passed. And which one of them gets to have the honor and the power and the influence and the status. And so in all of these occasions, uh, there's a connection to uh, greatness and honor and who is the the one who is most important among them. So in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. It says, they left that place and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He's he's getting this dedicated time to give them this important teaching that they have to get. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. There's this great moment. I I just, as a parent, I love this moment that Jesus has with the apostles, uh, where he says, what are you guys talking about back there? You ever have that moment where you walk in and your kids are doing something they aren't supposed to be doing, and you go, what are you guys up to? And there's just silence, and you can't get eye contact with anybody in the room. Nothing, we're not, nothing. Jesus has this moment with the apostles. What were you guys talking about back there? We weren't, were we talking? I don't remember talking. Were you talking? I, uh, what? Yeah. 
Over and over again, the apostles fail to understand that the gospel means that power gets turned upside down. That the people who are considered worthy of honor and worthy of recognition that should get the, the big piece of chicken at dinner and sit at the head of the table and be the ones that get all the attention when they're in the marketplace or in the synagogue, that Jesus is saying, yeah, you've had all the advantages already. When God's kingdom comes, it's going to get flipped upside down and the little people are going to get put on top. Because you want to know how crazy I'm, I'm suggesting this is going to get? That even this little child is going to be worthy of more honor and recognition and power than you are. So when you guys are on the road arguing about which one of you is going to take over the kingdom when I'm gone, here's what you need to know. I'm more interested in this little child taking over than any one of you. And until you understand that, you can't have a part in this. So when you go speak to powerful people, and part of the message that you have is that your power is not worth anything in the kingdom of God, that you're supposed to be becoming nothing like Jesus, being a servant, washing the feet of others, that, that there's this total reversal of influence. Powerful people don't like that message. And so when Paul spends three Sabbaths in the synagogue in Thessalonica proclaiming that the gospel means that powerful people need to become servants and servants need to be given honor. You have this dynamic where the powerful people start getting the bad characters and saying, we've got to get this guy out of town before we stop getting the seat of honor. I don't like what's being presented here. I don't like the message that Paul's got here. Uh, and they start rebelling against that. And James also talks about this. Turn over to James chapter 1. James, the brother of Jesus, is going to write about how power and influence and honor come to look completely different in the kingdom. James chapter 1, starting in verse 9, says this, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's not popular to go onto Wall Street and say, you know who God loves? Poor people. It's not popular to go stand in the, in the circles of fame and say, you know who God likes? Is the ones who nobody knows their name. And if you're abusing your power and your wealth, then you're not going to like the call, the kingdom call, to give up your power, influence, and wealth for the sake of those who don't have any. And yet that is the call that over and over again came is that there's going to be a reversal of power and honor structures in the kingdom of God. But not only that, uh, Paul begins going around and he begins preaching and teaching uh, right after the story that we began with today in Acts chapter 17, he's going to go preach in Athens. And when he gets to Athens, he's above a marketplace preaching on Mars Hill, looking down at the, the marketplace below, which is covered. Every corner of this marketplace has an idol to some god, an idol to some deity, to some you know, Greek or Roman or pagan god, some local community that has worshipped someone has an idol in this marketplace. And he goes and he starts telling them about how God isn't in created things, God is the creator. And he begins telling them that they can't keep worshipping stone-made items 
and not worship the one who made the stone. And inviting them to be followers of Jesus and not polytheistic. And so when he writes to Corinth, which was a very well-known pagan city filled with idols and temples, uh, he writes to the Corinthian church. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, because if you live in a place where all the meat in the marketplace is sacrificed to idols, and some people think that's a big deal because they believe that the idols still represent actual gods, and some people think it's not a big deal because they say, listen, who cares? There's no false gods anyways. And Paul says, listen, here's how you deal with that. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there's no god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we will live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Paul's message to the church in Corinth and everywhere that he went and proclaimed the gospel was there is one God and one God only. And you cannot worship pagan gods, and you cannot worship idols, and you cannot believe that there are other competing gods outside of the one who created and the one whose son Jesus died on the cross. There is one God. And, and we take this part of the gospel for granted. We take this for granted because we don't live in a world that's filled with polytheism. We don't live in a world where people worship lots of gods, where they have a mantle uh, that on it has shrines to this deity and shrines to that deity and that god. Um, if you've been to Guyana, we used to send mission teams to Guyana every year, and we'd go down there and preach. There's a lot of Hindus in Guyana. And so when you're preaching to a Hindu, uh, you tell them the gospel, and you say, Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins. Do you believe that? And they'll go, sure. Why not? You seem trustworthy. If you tell me it's true, I believe that it's true. Well, would you like to, to believe in Jesus and make him the Lord and master of your life? Yeah, I can do that. Okay, this means you cannot worship any other God. And they go, why would it mean that? That doesn't make sense. None of the other gods on my mantle are jealous when I add another God to the mantle. Why would yours be jealous about it? And you, and you kind of have to, if you've never thought about that question before, it really knocks you back. Christianity begins proclaiming to people that were totally comfortable adding another God to their mantle and to their shrines and to their belief system. They're totally comfortable with that. And Paul starts telling them, if you're going to worship God, you worship God only. If you're going to worship God, you have to let go of all of the other belief systems that are competing with your Christian faith. You have to let go of all the other belief systems that tell you this is right or wrong or this is how you live or this is who you worship. You only worship God. And to some extent, Israel has been proclaiming that all through the Old Testament. But at the same time, what does Israel get in trouble for over and over and over and over again? Worshiping idols. 
worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreths and worshiping all of these false gods and worshiping the gods of the Canaanites and, and the other people that are in the land. And, and Israel, for all the time that they spend talking about how there's only one God, they keep worshiping lots of others. And then you get to the New Testament and Paul starts preaching that there's one God and one God only and something incredible happens in, in human history. If you look at the history of humanity, one of the things that's constant is that outside of Israel, everywhere else in the world is polytheistic until Jesus Christ is crucified and resurrected. And then after that, everywhere that Christianity goes, polytheism stops being a major influence. Christianity wipes out the worship of many gods. Christianity wipes out idolatry all over the, the, the Western world. Wherever Christianity went for centuries after the cross, everywhere Christianity went, pagan gods disappear. And we, we take that for granted because they're just gone. But you have to know that when there are cities that are built around gods and deities and temples and sacrifices and Christianity comes in and within a hundred years, those cities, temples and deities and sacrifices are wiped out. That's incredible. And that kind of upside down transformation in a city doesn't happen without people getting really upset. It doesn't happen without people saying, hey, I make a lot of money making statues that people bow down to. I don't want you messing with my job. It doesn't happen without a lot of people saying, I don't like you interfering with the way that we worship these other gods. Those gods are going to get mad at us. And Paul says, I bet they won't. Bet they won't. They're not real. Well, should we eat the meat sacrificed to them? He goes, I don't care. They're not real. But if it bothers you, don't. That's his conversation about pagan gods and idols. But history bears out that Paul's message that there is one God becomes one of the most significant turning points in how religion is practiced in the Western world in all of history. And it's because Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected means he's God and no one else is. But it's not just that that turns things upside down. Paul even knows that one of the most controversial messages that he has uh, is really dealing with the idea that your religion is not tied to your ethnicity. See, in the ancient world, there was this idea that you worship your family's God and your family worships your nation's God and your community worships uh, the, the gods of your community. And so if you want to switch gods, you have to switch your ethnicity. This is why if you want to become uh, a proselyte, a Jew, uh, and you used to be a Gentile, you have to go through a long process of stopping to be a Gentile and becoming a Jew, even being circumcised, so that you can go around and say, I am now Jewish, and if you're Jewish, you can follow the law, and you can, you can observe the Sabbath, and you can follow the food laws, and all the other things that come with Judaism in the first century world. There were Gentile converts to Judaism, but they didn't stay Gentiles. They had to become Jews. And all of a sudden, Paul comes in and he says, listen, your belief in God and following of Jesus is no longer tied to your family and your ethnicity. This is a major change. No one in all of religious history has ever made a claim like this before when Paul starts to say it. The other apostles are really having a hard time even figuring it out. It's why the, the book of Galatians has to be written is because they're all having an argument about what this looks like. 
What do you mean Gentiles can worship the Jewish God and not be Jews? And he says, that's just exactly what I mean. They come into the family of Abraham through being baptized into Jesus. And so in Galatians 3, uh, starting in verse 14, he's making this exact claim. He says, he redeemed us, talking about Jesus, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Jesus redeemed us, and, and this is different than how we think about redemption. We think about redemption being Jesus redeemed us from being lost and, and being, having sins, and he redeemed us, and as a result, our sins are paid for, and we're now saved. But what Paul is saying in Galatians is a little bit different than that. It's a lot more advanced. He says, listen, he redeemed us so that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Not through circumcision, not through the law. It comes through Christ that we become children of Abraham, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That it's not law observance that brings us the promise. It's, it's being in Christ that brings us the promise of the Spirit. And so later, down in verse 26 of the same chapter, he's going to go on and say, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is totally new. And, and so much of Acts is trying to figure out how this thing works. Later in, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul's going to say, listen, if I would just quit preaching on this ethnicity and Jesus thing, I would quit being persecuted. He so directly ties this to his persecution that he says, this is the reason that the Jews are so mad at me all the time. And if you want to know how is Paul turning the world upside down, you just look at why he thinks he's being persecuted, and you're going to find an answer at the core of why Paul is turning the world upside down is this claim that your faith is not tied to your ethnicity and your family anymore, that you can become a follower of Jesus no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter what color your skin, no matter what nation you started in, you don't have to leave that behind. If you're in Jesus, you're in the family. That message makes everyone in the book of Acts lose their minds. When there's riots and they're, they're getting the bad characters in the streets, it's because they don't like the way that Paul is including people that they think should be excluded. Radical inclusion of anyone who is in Jesus Christ becomes one of the biggest reasons that Paul gets all kinds of trouble for turning the world upside down. He lets in the people that everyone else thinks should be kept at arm's length or outside the building or on the other side of town. And he says, are you in Jesus? Then come on in. You're part of the family. And some of the Jews would say, now, wait a minute. If they're part of the family, they've got to become Jews. And, and Paul would say, no, they don't. They're in Christ. That makes them heirs even as they are. They don't have to lose their identity and their ethnicity and their distinctiveness in order to be fully in Christ Jesus. They got to get rid of their polytheism, 
You can't worship all the old gods. You can't do all of the sacrifices. You can't do that. You've got to get rid of that. You can't keep practicing sexual immorality the way the Gentiles do. But listen, if you're in Jesus, you're in my family as you are. And he welcomes them in. The other thing Jesus did, and, and we talked about this, uh, I'm not going to get back into it today because we talked about it so recently, but when we talked about the armor of God in our Ephesians series a couple weeks ago, and if you want to hear more about this, go back and listen to that, uh, but it talks about uh, in the armor of God, Paul's saying you need to put on these traits and these characteristics and these pieces of armor so that you can understand and be transformed into a Jesus-type person. And the expectation is that it's not about rule-following. There's all kinds of religions in the world that are about following all the rules. And there's religions that are in the world that are about just internal transformation, that you're just so inwardly focused that you're not outwardly any good to the world. You don't make a difference, but you're so focused on the inside of stuff. Christianity has always been about, has always been about internal transformation that makes an external difference in a spiritual reality. You become changed on the inside because the Spirit gives you the fruits of the Spirit and the armor of God. Paul uses all kinds of different pictures to talk about this. But when God's Spirit is in you, you start to look like God and behave like Jesus. And the character and the virtue of God starts to be shaped in you, and it then changes your actions. It changes your outward behavior. It changes how you interact with your neighbor. And the person that you only like because Jesus got on the cross and got out of the tomb. That changes you. You behave differently because of the internal change that Jesus is making in your life through the Spirit. It makes an external difference in the physical world because of the spiritual reality. If you're sitting here going, man, that's a whole lot in just a couple sentences. Yeah, go back and listen to the sermon a couple weeks ago on the Ephesians armor of God that really gets into that idea. But the thing that you need to know is that when Paul is teaching people, you need internal and external transformation, and it's going to make a difference in the world. That starts to run up against people who are saying, I don't like this idea. Jesus is constantly going after the Pharisees and saying, you're whitewashed tombs. Yeah, you look good on the outside, but you're garbage on the inside. Sure, you're holy in your actions, but you are radically and terribly unholy on your insides. And you've got to deal with the inside stuff. That's what should be driving the outside stuff. So it's about internal, external, physical, and spiritual transformation. And the last one is this. Here's the last point. Is that the thing that makes this gospel turn the world upside down is that it's really rooted in grace and not obedience. It's in grace and faith and not in rules. And so in Galatians chapter 2, as Paul is trying to explain how all of this works, in Galatians 2, verse 15 and 16, here's what he says. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. If your plan, if your plan is to be good enough to get in, your plan is flawed. If your plan is to never make a mistake so that you can be worthy of being in God's presence on your own merits, you're in trouble. 
If that's your plan, you need a new plan. And here's the new plan, and this is what's turning the world upside down, because the Jews thought that if we can just all follow the law completely and perfectly for one day, Messiah will come and the kingdom of God will be set up and established and forever. And that's what we can look forward to. And Paul says, how's that working for you? Is he here yet? Is the kingdom here? He says, yeah, it is, but it's not the kingdom you expected. The kingdom is showing up and making a difference because Jesus came and brought the kingdom in a different way. And it wasn't about obedience. It was about being justified by grace through faith. That when we believe that it's credited to us as righteousness and we're given mercy and grace for the mistakes that we made and we're brought into the kingdom, not because we're good enough, but because Jesus was good enough. And that if we're in him, we get saved by grace and not because of our own goodness, but because of his goodness. And when you go start telling people that are so committed to rules and morality and all of the, the ways of doing things on the outside, and you go tell them, here's what you need, is you just need Jesus to forgive you by grace, not because of anything you've done. That's the only way that you can be saved. It starts turning the whole world upside down. Because you go tell people you need the law and you need to be one of our people and not one of those people. And, and, and we need uh, to have all the different kind of systems of things that we've always had and quit messing stuff up, Paul. And Paul just keeps preaching this gospel that's turning the world upside down and making people lose their minds. Now, let me ask you this. If we were able to do these kinds of things and teach these kinds of lessons and leave, live these kinds of lives, if we could change what greatness and service and honor were all about, would it still turn the world upside down today? I think it would. If we became people that proclaimed the one God who overcame all the little gods everywhere they went, would it begin turning the world upside down? I think it still does. If we, like Paul, made faith something tied to allegiance to Jesus and not allegiance to family and ethnicity and any other bond in this world, if we really were able to say that the allegiance that we have to King Jesus is greater than our allegiance to anything else, I think the world would notice and I think the world would be upset and it would make a difference and begin to change the world to begin turning it upside down. If we made religion not just about moralizing things and following a set of right and wrong rules, we should follow the rules and do what God believes is right, but that's not what saves us. We know that it's about internal and external, physical and spiritual transformation of the whole person. It begins to turn the world upside down. If we begin to believe that we're not saved by our own goodness, but by the grace of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save us and bring us into the kingdom of God, if we begin to latch on to that and get rid of our self-righteousness, but instead become people that are saved by grace who then give grace to others as an invitation to be part of this kingdom, it begins to turn the world upside down. The things that the world rejected in Paul, the world will continue to struggle with if we just stay committed to those things today. Will it be easy? No, it's never easy to change the world. But that doesn't mean that it's not the thing that we should be doing. Pray for our kids to have safe travels 
this week to and from York. But pray that their lives be turned towards adventure and that their lives be turned towards living dangerously in a world where doing the things that the kingdom of God calls us to are also the things that turn the world upside down. We're not calling them to a life of safety. We're calling them to what you're called to by Scripture today, to live dangerously, trying to turn the world upside down for the kingdom of God. If you need to respond to the gospel this morning, to receive that grace by being baptized into Jesus so that you can be part of the kingdom, one of his children, uh, part of the family. If you need to do that today, please come forward as we stand and sing.